Thanks for joining Cornerstone for our message of the week. We hope you'll be inspired and encouraged. To connect with our church family and to watch our services live, download our app today by texting Sparks Will Fly as one word, app to 77977. That's Sparks Will Fly app to 77977 or by visiting us online at sparkswillfly.cc. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to try to finish this up. I've been teaching for last three or four weeks out of this particular verse. We'll try to finish uh, today. we got a lot of ground to cover. Um, and then, if you will, go ahead and find Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to read that, and then we'll be traveling right along. We're going to go to 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. Um <clears throat> In way of announcements, remember we don't have, we won't, we will not have service this Wednesday night. We always take the Thanksgiving week off and just celebrate family and go out in the woods and kill something in the name of the Lord. And so uh, we won't be, uh, we won't meet this Wednesday night, but we'll be back next Sunday. Also, too, if you are interested in, I believe next Monday's date is uh, December the second. Is that correct? Someone has got a calendar right there, uh, December second. Uh, if you are interested in helping to serve on the children's team, remember this. Uh, there is a meeting that if you want to help, you need to be in that meeting because uh, we got a lot of stuff we got to go over. And uh, Stanton, what time is that meeting? 6.30? 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock next Monday, December the 2nd. If you want to help with the children and be involved on the children's team, um, whether that be teenagers, the small children, uh, whatever, uh, be here at 7 o'clock in the youth room next Monday night, December 2nd. Also, no church Wednesday night. We got that? All right, let's go to uh, uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. It says, uh, God is love. Those who are living in love are living in God. God lives through them. By living in God, love has been brought to us. Love has been brought to its full expression in us so that we may fiercely face the day of judgment because all that Jesus, because all that Jesus now is, so are we in this world. We brought that out. Remember what we talked about here? Jesus is what? He's glorified sitting at the right hand of the Father. So if, as Jesus is, so are we. So what are you? Glorified and sitting where? All right, we seated in heavenly places. All right, so are we in this world. Look at this. Love never brings what? Fear. For fear is always what? Related to punishment. But love's perfection drives the fear of punishment far from our hearts. Whoever walks constantly afraid of fear, of constantly afraid of punishment, has not reached love's perfection. Our goal is to what? Reach love's perfection. Our love for others is our grateful response to the love God first demonstrated to us. Anyone can say, I love God, yet have hatred toward another believer. This makes him a phony. Because if you don't love a brother or sister whom you can see, how can you truly love God whom you can't see? For he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also demonstrate his love for others. Now, in this, I wanted to, before we get into Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to try to wrap this up about being perfected in love, driving punishment out of our hearts. We're going to learn today, we're going to go over today the difference between punishment and discipline. And then I'm going to use the two paradigms, which I re I've got this from uh, Danny Silk. I did not get this gleaning in the carpet praying, but uh, I, I'm into some stuff by him and some stuff by Brandon Manning, and it's just phenomenal, and I just keep writing, and, and it's just good stuff. And so I'm just trying to give you where I'm at in my own heart. So we talked about this, that a punishment paradigm is just for a little quick review, if I can get this uh the punishment paradigm is my is is the identity and the punishment paradigm. If punishment and fear is what's dominating my heart, we want to get to the place where what we're anchored and our trust is in what love, where the perfect love dominates our heart, wherefore it drives the fear of punishment far from us. But when when the punishment paradigm is exists, my identity is still that I'm an orphan or a slave. 
The core belief is my flaws and failures make us unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. I desire disconnection and punishment. So does everyone else with flaws and failures. The motive is the fear of punishment and disconnection. Behavior strategies is avoid punishment either by hiding and fitting in through pleasing and perfecting or performing or, ref or refusing to fit in uh, by rebelling and making, uh, making my own rules. Punish others when they scare or hurt or offend me. The goal is self-preservation. Now, we established this uh, last Sunday, that we can never walk in the freedom that Christ paid for as long as the goal is self-preservation. We find that in Genesis chapter 3. We'll, we'll, we'll get there too. Now, we want to move to the new covenant paradigm. This is where he says, my identity is in Romans chapter 8 where I've been received adoption as a son and daughter of God, right? So my identity is son and daughter of God. My core belief is through Jesus, I have become a son or a daughter who, I, who is worthy of love, belonging, and connection. My mistakes do not disqualify me. This is good news. My mistakes do not disqualify me from the Father's love. Instead, they are precisely where I learned the depths of his love, forgiveness, commitment to transform me into a mature, into a mature child. Motive is love. The behavior strategy is pursue connection even when it's scary, painful, or offensive. And, and the goal is connection. So let's look at it. Now, the, I just want to set this groundwork up because what I want to deal with today is, the, uh, is, is really punishment versus discipline. Most of us in here are aware of punishment, right? You with, you with me? You got beat down, come on, timeout was how long you was knocked out, all those kind of stuff. Uh, uh, punishment. But how many knows that punishment uh, uh, happens a lot in the house of God too? You with me? You offend somebody, drive them away or whatever. We, we punish them either by putting them in the penal, penalty box or we just simply just uh, punish them by not saying nothing to them. Now let's look at Hebrews chapter twelve. This is the sub. Uh, this is where uh, the where God uh, introduces. Uh, this is going to deal with uh, discipline versus punishment. Hebrews chapter twelve, verse one. As for us, we we all have we we. We have all these great witnesses who encircled us like clouds. So must we, we must let go of every wound that has pierced us. I love the way Brian Simmons, this is where we finished up last Sunday. It's in this text. I love the way that the Passion Translation, uh, the Bible says in, in the King James, let us lay aside every weight and sin that does so easily beset us. He says right here, the way he translates this is, so we must let go of every wound that has pierced us. If you look down into his notes in 12.1, it says, get rid of every, every arrow tip in us. The implication is carrying an arrow tip inside a wound that weighs us down and keeps us from running the race with freedom. We talked about where Bill Johnson taught on the, on the Roman soldier's armor, and he talked about the shield of faith, and he talked about the enemy releases what? Fiery darts, right? How many knows that, the, that, that church members release fiery darts from time to time? And the implication of this is that the darts that have pierced the shield of, the shield of faith, help me communicate here, Lord, the shield of faith has now lost into the soldier's body. And so what the soldier would do is he would take the sword of the spirit. How many knows also that was the short sword that like Raphael the ninja turtle carried. And what he would do is he would take that sword and he would begin to remove the shrapnel from his own life. How many knows that the word of God, the sword, is not for you to use to build your case up against someone? But the Word of God is a mirror that we look into for our own life and that we take that Word to remove the own wounds out of our own heart. You with me now? All right, so this is what he's talking about here. So let's, let's let go of every wound that has pierced us in sin that does so easily, that we so easily fall into. Then we will be able to run life's marathon, race with passion and determination for the path has already been marked out before us. We look away from the natural realm and we fasten our gaze on the Jesus who birthed faith within us, who leads us forward into faith's perfection. His example is this, because his, his heart was focused on the joy of knowing that you would be his, he endured the agony of the cross and conquered its humiliation and now sits exalted at the right hand of the throne of God. So consider carefully how Jesus face such intense opposition from sinners who oppose their own souls so that you won't become torn down and cave under life's pressures. After all, you've not reached the point of sweating blood in your opposition to sin. 
And have you forgotten his encouraging words spoken to you as his children? He says, my child, don't underestimate the value of the discipline and the training of the Lord. And get de- or get depressed when he has to correct you. For the Lord's training of your life is the evidence of his what? Faithful love. God's, God's discipline is motivated by what? Love. You with me? For the Lord's training of your life is the evidence of his faithful love. And when he draws you to himself, if he proves you are his delightful child, fully embrace God's correction as part of your what? Training. For he is doing what any loving father does for his children. For who has ever heard of a child who never had to be corrected? We all should welcome God's discipline as the validation of authentic sonship. For if we have never once endured his correction, it only proves we are strangers and not his sons. Now let's establish this. God brings discipline and correction through through your relationship with him, but he also uses what? Parents, godly leaders, all of those things. And isn't it true that we respect our earthly fathers even though they corrected and disciplined us? Then we should demonstrate an even greater respect for God, our spiritual father, as we look at this, look the way he translates this, as we submit to his life-giving discipline. When God brings discipline, it brings what? Life. When punishment it brought, it brings what? Fear. But when discipline is brought, it brings what? Life. His life-giving discipline. Our parents corrected us for the, for, for the short time of our childhood as it seemed good to them. Some of us was raised by parents that seemed good to them a lot. You with me? <laughs> Look at this. Our parents corrected us for the short time of our childhood as it seems good to them. But God corrects us throughout our lives for what? Our own good. Listen to this. Punishment is focused on benefiting the group, but discipline is focused on benefiting you. You with me? Throughout our own lives for our own good, giving us an invitation to share His holiness. Now, all discipline seems to be more pain than pleasure at the time. Yet later, it will produce... What? Transformation of character, bringing a harvest of righteousness and peace to those who yield to it. So the goal of discipline is what? Maturity. To become a mature son. Now, the first is this is a re- discipline is a relational thing between the father and his children. In the new covenant, discipline is focused on benefiting the person who made the mess. Punishment is on focused on protecting the interest of everyone but the offender. In other words, you made us look bad, so we're going to make you pay for it. The primary difference between punishment and discipline is this. Listen, in punishment, we uphold the rules. In discipline, restore the relationship. Listen, you're not gonna, we're, not gonna, we're not gonna be able to control our kids into keeping them from doing the things we don't want them to do. You got to get deeper at the heart level than that. Listen to this. In punishment, the goal is that you uphold the rules. In discipline is restoring the relationship. In punishment, pain is inflicted. Who? Someone is inflicting pain upon the one that committed the crime. In discipline, pain is embraced. In punishment is worldly sorrow. We sorry that we got caught. Come on now. In discipline is godly sorrow. And what does the Bible say godly sorrow leads to? Repentance. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. What is repentance? Metanoia means to what? Change the way we think, which is the goal. Repentance in punishment, repentance is irrelevant. But in discipline, repentance is essential. We got to change what? The goal is to change my heart. If I could change my heart and the way I think, what will, what will happen? Behavior will automatically change. 
Forgiveness is uh, forgiveness is irrelevant in the punishment paradigm. Other words, I'm punishing you regardless of whether you like it or not. I'm going to inflict pain on you, and I don't care whether you forgive me or not, but I feel better because I got to punish you. Y'all all right with this? Come on, y'all help me out right here. It's going to be a long, it's going to be a turbulent ride if we don't get no help. You with me? So listen to this. In the punishment paradigm, uh, forgiveness is not necessary because I got to inflict pain on you. Now I feel better about myself because I actually dealt with you. But listen to this. In the New Testament, in discipline, forgiveness is essential. All right? In punishment requires submission of control. In discipline requires self-responsibility of self-control. This is all, this, I'm telling you, God does not want us, uh, this was really huge, this was really huge in the last really two decades. Everybody want to know who, 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 who you're up under, who's over you. Let me even translate that in most, in not all cases, but in most cases. In most cases, it means who are you letting dominate your life? God give us the Holy Spirit for the Holy Spirit to dominate our life. God wants self-control. Are you with me now? God wants self-control. Mm-hmm. All right, listen to this. In punishment, in punishment, the goal is stopping bad, bad behavior. And we just got to stop the bad behavior. In discipline, it is about the transformation of the heart. All right, punishment, good behavior is compliance. But in, in discipline, good behavior is the fruit of love. In punishment, is powerless. We, ha- we become powerless. Let me tell you this. There's a book called um, Pathway to Powerful. It's a, very, it's, a very, it's a very powerful book. I bought that book for several people. And you wouldn't realize that how much of our language is, is based around powerlessness. And so what they did was is they, this, that this leadership team took this structure that they would allow no one to communicate powerlessness. Let me just show you how it's an everyday language. Just say, for instance, you're on the way to work. You show up to work 10 minutes late, 15 minutes late. You go in and this is what you say. I'm sorry I'm late this morning. I got behind the farmer. You know what I'm saying? He was trying to, he had this big tractor with a set of hairs. Had to ride him for all the way. Then I got in the school zone. And then, you know, as I was coming up, you know, something else got in the way, and this is why I'm late this morning. None of that puts the responsibility on you. That is the conversation of powerless people. And when we live with a powerless mindset, we, have, we don't have the ability to change anything because we're powerless to change anything. And I want to say this, anybody's got the power to change anything in your life today. <laughs> so listen to this. So powerful thinking is this. I'm sorry I'm late today. Dennis, you know what happened is I got up a little bit too late and I didn't account for the time that I realized it's the harvest season and I got behind the tractor. I realized in the morning I need to get up a little earlier so that I make sure I got plenty of time. All right. Listen right here. It's going to be one of these days. Listen to this. Punishment is fear-driven. And discipline is love-driven. In the punishment, what I remember sometimes when I was a little boy about my dad before he whipped me, I don't know why, I guess this was the added effect. He would fold the leather over twice and then pop it like a, like, you know what I'm saying? He'd pop it about three times. That happened to anybody else in their home? Whatever. The belt be folded over, popped three or four times. Make sure. All right, so listen, in punishment, it's fear-driven. In discipline, is love-driven. In punishment, the goal is self-preservation. In discipline, the goal is connection. Uh, and, and punishment is external law, and discipline is internal law. Now, let's go to Galatians chapter 6. Uh, let's say this. We've got somebody messed up. We know they messed up. We know that Bats has committed a crime. Now, how, how, do, we, how do we go about de- dealing with this? Let's go to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Uh, this is how we confront someone right here. If you're going to confront someone that you've, that, that's offended you, or you got an issue with, the best thing to do is go ahead and get you a posse that agrees the way you agree. How many believe that's God's way? The best way to confront them is you call about seven people, and this is how you do it to make it legal in the Christian church. I just want you to pray about this. But you put your view on there. You with me? 
Galatians chapter 6, let's look at this, Paul says. Paul says, my, I'm, I'm reading out the Passion Translation, my beloved friends, if you see a, a believer who is overtaken with a fault, in other words, he's messed up, he's overtaken with a fault, may the one who overflows with the Spirit seek to restore him, look at this, win him over with your gentle words, which will open his heart to you and will keep you from exalting yourself over him. This is good, right? Listen, my beloved friends, if you see a believer who is overtaken with a fault, may the one who overflows, the King James says those who are what? Spiritual. He translates this, those who overflow with the Spirit, seek to restore him. What's the goal? The goal is, is the goal isolation? Is the goal to kick them out of the church? Is the goal to quit having fellowship with them? What is the goal? Restoration. Come on, y'all. The goal's restoration. Restore him and win him over what? With gentle words. You don't win him over with. Let me tell you what you've done, man. Win him over with gentle words, which will open his heart and will keep you from what? Exalting yourself over him. The Bible says in the King James, lest you fall to what? The same temptation. Now listen to this. Those who, are spirit, those who are spiritually, Paul is speaking to those who are what? Spiritually mature. The spiritual mature are those with this. Humble self-awareness, loving discernment, and relational wisdom. I'm going to deal with these three right here. It's what? A humble self-awareness, loving discernment, and relational wisdom. Consider yourself lest you also be tempted. Many believe the spiritual mature are those who no longer struggle with sin in their lives. The spiritual mature are who live with a healthy, healthy self-awareness of their own shortcomings and are walking out their own journey of discipline with the Father. Listen to this. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, I am the chief of sinners. Do you think that Paul was beating himself down? No, Paul was saying, I realize every day where I live. I am what I am by the grace of God. Come on, when he talked about fornicators, murderers, and all of these, he says, such words some of you, but by what? The grace of God. A humble self-awareness realize that I am no better than the person I'm trying to confront. Humble self-awareness is I've also had to be confronted. I also am aware that I'm also a flawed man and I also have shortcomings in my life. If you confront someone and you are the perfect person, come on somebody, you will never win in that relationship. Loving discernment. Many people think the gift of discernment is for figuring out what is wrong with people and using that to justify, criticize, or creating distance from them that, they, that, that is punishing those they have judged to be offensive. Now let's look at this in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 1, refuse to be a critic full of bias towards others. That's good wisdom right there. I need to hear that for myself. Look at this. Refuse to be what? A critic full of bias towards others. Judgment will not be passed on you, for you will be judged by the same standard that you've used to judge others. How many, how many, I think it was, um, I think it was, uh, Ted Haggard said this after the, whenever he fell or whatever and all that came out. And one thing he said is he said, every time the church gets an opportunity to show the love of God, we always fail. Are you with me? I'm, I'm just telling you this. I, I came from a small town where, where one, of, one of the local pastors had a big moral failure. And it was almost like the church celebrated that he went down. How many believes that's the heart of God? Huh? How many knows the heart of God is to see that person restored? Not necessarily restored back in, not, not, uh, and, and I don't want to take away from this. The main thing restoration has to take place first is the restoration of his heart back towards God. 
Now, look what he says here in Matthew chapter 7. Refuse to be full of critical, critic, refuse to be a critic full of bias towards others, and judgment will not be passed on you. For you will be judged by the same standard that you use to judge others. In other words, we hold the measuring line. The measurement you use on them will be used on you. Gosh, dog, this is good right here. Why should you focus on the flaw in someone else's life and yet fail to notice the glaring flaws of your own? Y'all right, it's quiet as a mouse up in here. Hitting this Baptist church this morning. Why should you focus on the flaws in someone else's life yet fail to notice the glaring flaws of your own? How should you say to your friend, let me show you where you're wrong when you are guilty of even more? This is the approach that you enter in to confront someone. You with me? Realizing that your own life is flawed. Realizing that we all need the grace of God. Let me show you where you're wrong when you're guilty of even more. You're being hypocritical. A, uh, you're being a hypocritical and a hypocrite. First acknowledge your own blind spots and deal with them. Then you will be capable of dealing with the blind spots of your friend. How many would agree with me in this room, including myself holding the mic? We all have blind spots. And God is trying to heal those blind spots in our life. All right, so look at this. The word discern means to judge the difference between two things. It does not mean to judge someone guilty and worthy of punishment. So the word discern means the ability to judge between two things. It does not mean to judge someone guilty and worthy of punishment. When we judge people and put them in the penalty box, we are not operating from a new covenant paradigm. We are operating, we are using the gift of discernment with a wrong spirit. Let me read that again. The word discern does not mean to judge the difference between, it means, it, it, the word discern means to judge the difference between two things. It does not mean to judge someone guilty and worthy of punishment. When we judge people and put them in the penalty box, we are not operating from a new covenant paradigm. We are using the gift of sermon with a wrong spirit. How many knows you can have the right information but have a wrong spirit? You with me now? All right, let me say this, and I've got, I didn't get this out of a book. I've got this from my own life. When whatever we're dealing with that we feel like opposing us, when we put a face on it, listen to me, when you put an individual's face on it, you have already lost the battle. For we never fight individuals. We, fight, we do not fight flesh and blood, the Bible says. We fight against what? Principalities and powers. Now, I understand that principalities flow through personalities, but we're not fighting the individual. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Jesus passionately determined, passionately determined to leave for Jerusalem. Let nothing distract him from fulfilling his mission there. And for the time for him to be lifted up was drawing near. So he sent messengers ahead of him as, as envoys to a village of the Samaritans. But as they approached the village, they turned away. They would not allow Jesus to enter, for he was on his way to worship into Jerusalem. And when the disciples, Jacob and John, realized what was happening, they came to Jesus and said, Lord, if you want to, if you, if you wanted to, you could command fire to fall down from heaven like Elijah did and destroy all these wicked people. How many's ever called fire on somebody? Y'all ain't going to move on nothing, man. We'll be the first ones at the buffet today. How many's ever called fire on somebody? How many? <laughs> I have used the scripture. Bless them. It's like a heap of coals of fire on them. You know what I'm saying? Buy them lunch. God, let it rain on them right now. Burn them while they're eating it. This is what's going on. Listen. Jesus goes into the city. They reject his ministry. When they reject his ministry, let's, let's go back right here. I want, I want to point something out right here in this text. Look at this. Jesus passionately determined to leave from Jerusalem, let nothing distract him from feeling his mission there for the time to be lifted was drawing near. So he sent messenger ahead of him his own voice to a village of what? Of what? What village did he go to? The Samaritans. 
He's entering a Samaritan village. They reject his ministry, say they don't want to. So John looks at him and said, Jesus. He says, you remember in the Bible, you remember in the Bible, in the Word of God, in, in Kings 18, that Elijah called fire down from heaven. How about let's call fire down from heaven on these wicked people? Jesus looked at him. He didn't call him a devil. Did he call him a devil? No, he didn't. He said, he said you don't realize what? What, what, what? what spirit you are of. So listen, how can we determine whether our judgment is true? It comes back to where our heart is anchored. What spirit are we? There can only be two spirits we are of. Romans 8 verse 15 says, Now you, you have received not the spirit of what? Slavery. The spirit of slavery, but you have received the spirit of what? Adoption whereby we cry out, Abba, Abba, Father. So one is a spirit of slavery that holds me under the old covenant where my identity is as an orphan or a slave, but the other spirit leads me what? into sonship where the identity of my heart is anchored as a son and daughter of God. So what happened here, here they're, they're, Jesus said, man, you, you have a jacked up spirit. Look at this. First of all, they did not realize the depth and the power of his grace that was on his life. If they would have called down fire, we would have never had John chapter 4 where he encounters a woman of Samaria who goes back to that city and they see citywide transformation. So here's the deal. The people we want to call fire down on, or they could be the greatest evangelists that the world has ever seen. I, I believe that so many people that are greatly gifted by God are the ones that the ones that we've not yet seen entered into the church yet. We are going to see the parable of Matthew chapter 20 come to pass, the parable of the labors, and the ones that come in at the last minute of the harvest are going to receive the same reward of those that have worked all throughout the heat of the day. So here's the deal. What spirit, what spirit are we? Man, listen, we cannot deem someone too fully gone. What spirit are you are? You don't know what manner of spirit you're of. The disciples saw the, Samar saw the Samaritans as rebellious and were unworthy of the gospel. However, Jesus saw the great redeeming grace of his father. He goes on in the next, the next chapter to show us the parable of the good Samaritan. Look at this. He's, he shows us the parable of the good Samaritan because he's breaking that view down in their heart that you see these people are un, unworthy of the gospel, but I'm telling you, nobody's too far gone. All right. So here's this, Romans 8, 15, we've received what? The spirit of, you did not receive the spirit of slavery under fear, but the spirit of adoptions into sonship. Spiritual maturity is all about allowing the Holy Spirit to remove the blind spots of fear of punishment with, with his perfect love. John says perfect love drives out all fear. Remember, trusting God is the courage to accept acceptance. Brendan Manon says trusting God is the courage to accept that we have already been accepted in the beloved. If we do not have to work for acceptance. Listen to me. If we could come to terms of that, maybe I'm the only one in this room, but if we did not have to, we, we try to get acceptance in so many different areas through work, through our through our social life, in the church life, through using gifting and all that we have, but the, he, Brennan Manning says the courage, the trust is the courage to accept that I've already been accepted. If I could come to the terms that I've already been accepted, then there's nothing else I have to prove before God for Him to accept me which will move me into my identity as trusting God as a true son. All right, finish up with this, relational wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to apply knowledge and understanding skillfully according to the situational, according to the situation. Man, I need some reading glasses up here, especially I write, man. I write in tongues, then I have to interpret it. This is what makes it amazing. I have to interpret my own writing. Listen to this. Relational wisdom is where we take the lessons we have learned through our own journey of growth in self-awareness and loving discernment and put, them, and put that to work to help someone else out. So when we go to, when we go to meet with someone, we're trying, to overcome, we're trying to help someone overcome a fault or Whatever it is when we're meeting. Relational wisdom is 
is I have enough history with God where I've seen enough things to where I have been able to pull that back and how I've navigated my own life or seen someone navigate their life through that. And then I have the ability to apply that knowledge to their life to help them out. How many knows that we're in a room full of people that's went through something? And so having healthy self-awareness is what? Realizing that I'm a flawed individual. I do not have it all together. And so my approach to someone who's had a failure or someone that's causing a mess up in a relationship is I approach that someone realizing what? That I have blind spots in my, whole, in my own life. Well, go to the, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. I'm not trying to remove a speck from my brother's eye when a beam and poles in my own eye. Y'all right? And so then, on the relational wisdom, is I just approach someone and I, I take out from my own life, your, your own life's, your own life's uh, journey. And the wisdom is to know how to apply that at that situation. Listen to this. First thing you need to learn is God's design and purpose for people and his vision for human flourishing. It's tempting to focus on our own flaws and shortcomings without first anchoring ourselves in the truth that God's purposes and power are greater. Listen to this. You're the anchor of your heart in your situations, when your shortcomings, other people's shortcomings, your own flaws, because we're our own worst critic. Sometimes it's, we, it's easy to forgive somebody else, but the hardest person to forgive is your own self. Has anybody else lived with that? Listen to this. So the first thing is this, God's design and purpose for people and his vision for human flourishing. It's tempting to focus on our own flaws and our shortcomings without first anchoring ourselves in the truth that God's purposes and power are greater. Whatever, listen, if you're in a deep state of addiction, God's purposes are greater. Whatever I'm going through, if I've been through five divorces, come on. Y'all ain't going to help nothing out. I'm just, I love it. Stonewalling me. I love that. Listen to this. There's nothing more greater than that. Second, learn about sin and how it, how it violates our design and purpose. Genesis 3 lays out the basic origin and the development of sin in our hearts. It begins with mistrusting God. It begins, sin begins with what? Mistrusting God. We went through all of this on a leadership one night of Genesis chapter 3. All sin starts with a distorted view of God. You do not see him as a great provider. You, you, and we live with this orphan mentality that if, if God's going to provide for me, I'm going to have to help him out and I'm going to have to do it myself. All sin start with this second. Learn about sin and how it violates our design and purpose. Genesis 3 lays out the basic origin and development of sin in our hearts. It begins with mistrusting God. It leads to putting ourselves on the throne and results in bondage to shame and fear punishment. Every sinful behavior in our lives is rooted in this pattern. I'm going to read it one more time. Learn about sin and how it violates our design and purposes. Genesis chapter 3 lays out the basic origin and development of sin in our hearts. It begins with mistrusting God, leads to putting ourselves on the throne. What is putting yourself on the throne? Self-preservation. I got to look out for me. God, God, God is not going to watch out for me, so I must look out for myself. How many knows he's a good father? God is looking out for us. Even when you don't believe God, is, there's never a moment that God is not working on our behalf. There is never a moment that God is not gotten, that God is not moving things for us. And the enemy always wants to highlight the things that we're praying about, the things that are on our heart, the things that we're, we're, we're wanting to see happen, but we don't see no movement. The enemy wants to highlight those things instead of the things that God is doing. But God is always moving on our behalf. He gave us this. He said, consider the sparrow and consider the lily. How much more are you to, to me than the sparrow or the lily? That's how much we mean to God. And listen, everything we have is a lordship problem. If he really is a good shepherd that is leading us beside still waters and green pastures. All right. So, so sin starts with mistrusting God. It leads to putting ourselves on the throne of self-preservation. And what is the end result? It results in bondage to shame and the fear of punishment. Every sinful behavior in our lives is rooted in this pattern. Third, learn about the gospel. God's solution for sin. And now it works in our lives through the journey of discipleship. This generation, in this generation, we must combat many misconceptions about the gospel. It is not about getting saved so that we can go to heaven when we die. 
Alan, Mike, would you help me close this out? We're going to end this in faith right here, okay? Listen, it's not about getting saved so that we can go to heaven when we die. It is about entering a reconciled relationship with the Father, ourselves, and our others, and receiving His Holy Spirit so we can grow in these relationships. We said again, the, the gospel is not about getting us saved where we can go to heaven. It is about entering a reconciled relationship with the Father, ourselves, and others, receiving the Holy Spirit so that we can grow in, the, in these relationships. This is where God undone, undoes sin in our lives by leading us from mistrust to trust, from idolatry to true worship, and from fear to love. Now, how? let me just ask this. How is my life? Okay, my, my name's John. I, I, I come, I give my life to the Lord. I, got, I get saved today. I give my life to the Lord. I'm jacked up in many areas of my life. I was not raised in the perfect home. Had a lot of addictions in my life. Broken marriage. Children are scattered. How is a guy like that going to ever get his life in order? Well, first of all, if you give him a gospel that tells him today he got saved, now he's on his way to heaven and leave him alone, he's going to be continually jacked up. But if you take that same guy, you take that same guy, you tell him that he's been 100% forgiven of all his sins. God has never held any problem or any wrongdoing in his life ever held that against him one day. He's been totally forgiven. He does not have to fear one day of ever facing the wrath of God. Boys get shaky right here. Not one day will he ever fear, have to fear the wrath of God. Say it again. Not one day Will he ever have to fear the wrath of God? You know, God, he so hates California for all the cesspool of crap that they pump out of there. They're just going to fall off into the ocean. He's going to get tired of it one day. Friend, the truth is, is he's already been tired of it, and he's already dealt with it. Have you ever took, I dare you to take the Passion Translation and just read Isaiah 53, how it pleased God to crush his son on the cross. Every bit of the anger and every bit of the wrathful thoughts that God had towards sin, he put it on Jesus on the cross so that you would not have to experience that. Y'all, that's good news. I mean, I don't know what news could be better than that. So you tell him that he's 100% forgiven. He will never experience the wrath of God. He's totally accepted as a son of God. Then you put him in community. And true community is not everybody will connect to the preacher, but somebody will connect to the body. You with me? You find a connection because Paul says, this, we're all many members, but we're part of one body. So he, you got to find a body. And how you find the body is you find the people that march to your, if, if you're playing an A note, and that's what's in you, when you find that A note, that's your choir. And you, you get a part of that community. Then you tell him the most important relationship he can develop is with the Holy Spirit. Come on, y'all. Develop a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And as you develop this relationship with the Holy Spirit, talk to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, fill my heart with love. I thank you the same passion that God has for Jesus, He has for me. The same passion, the same burning passion that God has for Jesus, He has for me. What happens is as his relationship with the Holy Spirit strengthens, as his relationships with those who he's in community with strengthens, the power of that old life is driven out of his life. Let me say this. 
it's worthy of repeating where we're at Wednesday night. In Luke chapter 13, there's a sinful woman that enters the house where Jesus is and she washes her feet with her tears. As she's washing his feet with her tears, Peter looks at Jesus with this blank stare and he said, if he were a prophet, if he were a true prophet, he would know what manner of woman is at his feet. This lady's filthy. She's known in town to be a prostitute. This is the thought going into his head. Jesus fastened his eyes on Peter and says, Peter, I have a word for you. Would you like for me to share? And he shares two people with two different types of debts in their life. One with a great debt, one with a small debt. And the banker calls and forgives both of the debts. The one with the great debt and one with the small debt. He said, who do you think will have much more, have more love for the banker? He said, I suppose, Lord. He said, I suppose, Lord, it will be the one who had the greater debt. And then he goes on to talk about this woman. And he said, when I entered your house, you didn't offer me the brotherly kiss. You didn't offer me water to wash my feet or wash my hands. But this lady has not ceased to wash my feet with her tears. The deal was not that, that, that Jesus needed to know what manner of woman it was. Peter was the one that needed to know what manner of the power of the grace that set in front of him. You cannot deem people too far gone. I know that, I know, listen to me, family members, I have got family members and I've, I've heard people say this, listen, they, they don't 50 years old now, they don't 60 years old, they ain't never going to change. I thought that my dad would never change, but can I tell you something? I saw him change before he left there. You can never deem someone too far gone. Peter wanted the Lord to know what manner of woman was at his feet. But what he needed to know was the power of God's grace, mercy, and love that he was sitting right next to him. But before, Pete, before Jesus leaves, Peter gets to see the depth of that. In John chapter 21, the Lord is peering on the shore. Peter had done stood up in the, in the, in the, at the Last Supper. And he said, Lord, listen, all these ones in here, they say you love you. But he said, I'll tell you what. He said, I'll die with you. Peter said, Jesus said, hold on, Peter. Calm down. Listen, before the rooster crows in the morning, you're going to deny me three times. His last denial was by fire when a young teenage girl came to him and he said, were you not with him also? Were you not with him also? Peter started cussing and he denies the Lord and he hears the rooster crow and he's gone. Now Peter looks at him. you got to get this right here before you leave today. Now Jesus is looking at Peter. Peter denies him three times. Jesus did not go to Peter and say, I cannot believe you blew it. I, I cannot believe that you, you could not even have enough. You couldn't even stand with me when I needed you the most. I can't believe that you couldn't even stand in front of a teenage girl and say that you know me. That is not how he addressed him. Jesus simply looks at Peter. And he reminds him of his confession. Peter, do you love me? More than all these. He said, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, well, feed my sheep. He said, Peter, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know that I love you. Ten, my lambs. Jesus looks at him the third time and he says, Peter, do you love me? At this point, Peter fastens his eyes on the Lord and he said, God, you know all things. You know that I love you. He said, well, feed my sheep. And he said, Peter, when you were young, you went about where you wanted to. But when your old men are going to lead you where you don't want to go, they will stretch your arms wide and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus prophesying of the way he would die being the crucifix. And church history says Peter was crucified. And when he, hang on, when he hung on the cross, he requested to be turned upside down because he was not worthy to hang like the Lord. I want to show you is this. What Jesus was doing when he told Peter, I've heard it said, well, he had, to, he had to confess three times that he loved him because he denied him three times. But I want to tell you what reason why I believe he had to confess three times. 
Because the loudest thing in Peter's heart was not his confession of love, but the loudest thing he heard was the rooster crow. And Jesus was drowning out that crowing voice in his heart that he had failed. By the first time, it got a little lower. I feel the Holy Ghost in this room. The second time, it got a little lower. But by the third time, that rooster crowing voice was gone in his heart. And he was settled in the fact. And let me tell you what else Jesus said. He was telling him every time when he told him to feed the sheep, he was calling him a leader. And he said, Peter, I made no mistake when I got on your boat. I knew you were messed up. I knew you were a foul mouth, I mean, crazy country, just country fisherman. I knew I was going to have a lot of problems with you. But when I got on your boat, I saw you a leader in your fallen state. And Peter, I want you to know, even though you denied me three times and you cried and, and the rooster crowed, and, and that's, what you, that's why you're full of shame and guilt, I want you to know you're still the same leader that I saw on that broken ship. And I want to tell you today, I came to remind you, you who you always been. This is the good news of the gospel, friend. When we make mistakes and when people count us out, God never counts us out. He just says simply, get back up and keep moving. Stand up, let's pray. Father, I love you. Just worship you. Just raise your hands. For the love of God in this room. Oh, we love you, Jesus. I heard Dutch Sheets say this. So many broken leaders. I think it was sometime in 2018 I had the privilege of sitting at a table and this guy, this leader looked at me and I mean it's just been like I don't know, over a decade and he says, I'm just now getting where I can say the word apostolic because of the hurt and the pain which he had to walk through I'm going to tell you that I do believe like Dutch and others that we're going to see a homecoming of leaders that have been hurt, that have been broken, busted. They're going to come running to the house of God again because we're learning. Let me tell you something. Those that handle the broken should only be those who are spiritually mature that walk with humble self-awareness, loving discernment, and relational wisdom, who display the heart of the Father. I'm having to learn that with the way I handle my children. If you get the book, which is where I've got a ton of notes from, by Danny Silk, Unpunishable, read the foreword in there by Sean Bolts. That'll challenge any man that reads that. But he said that when he was a little boy and he would mess up, his daddy would come to him and he'd say, Son, I've got to deal with you. There is no doubt. But he said, But he said, I got to go. And I got to get my own heart right. He said, Because discipline is not about me, it's about training you. And I got to make sure it benefits you. Let me tell you this before I leave. Holy Spirit just reminded me this. I was out at Reed Bingham one day. Me and my boys were fishing. And I saw on the radar there was a storm coming. And we were up the river of peace. And I told Grant, I said, get a trolling motor up. We got, we got to get to the hill. I said, it's, it's a storm fixing to hit. It was, it was on us so fast that I, I didn't even have time to load the boat up. I just, I just put the boat up at the, at the uh, we took it over there to the, the sandy area. Cause I wasn't going to put it up by the dock and let the wind just sit beat the side of my boat, you know, on the dock. But anyhow, we run and jumped in the truck and the bottom fell out. 
there was one other truck out there and then we seen them they were in a john boat like a little stick steering john boat and they were coming up you know what i'm saying and it was a it was a man that had his wife and his little boy and they were they were um they were trying to load the boat it was flooding rain and everything the little boy was 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 excited he had been caught some fish and He's excited about being in the water. And little boy's probably, I don't know, probably four or five years old. His dad was having a little difficulty getting the boat up and having the wife to back the truck in the water. And she literally did. She backed the whole trailer under the water. And I told Grant, I said, oh, my gosh, she is fixing to sink his truck. The tailpipes was underwater. Please, she's fixing to have the water over the tailgate. And he's screaming, you know what I'm saying? Tell her, you know. <laughs> but I watched him in his frustration. I just watched this video play out. Because that little boy wouldn't get out of the boat fast enough, the dad reached down and snatched him up with a life jacket on. And I could see from my windshield, this is the terror, the terror that just went on his face. Let me say something, Dad. Every time we do that, you are instilling into that child. That's what his father's like in heaven. That his father gets frustrated with him. And when he grows up, he's a grown man. And he messes up. He's going to believe his father's ready to reach down and snatch him up because he didn't do something at the first command. Come on, y'all. See, as a, as a father, we set the example to the child of what he's like. That's the role of the father. So what I'm learning is when I'm frustrated... That's not the time to bring discipline. That's not the time. And I'm raising teenagers and other ones too. You know what I'm saying? I used to, Catherine used to, when I used to fish at Reed Bingham a lot, I would have Asher. That was when we had like a 17-foot bass boat. And she, I would get home and she said, did you enjoy the afternoon? I said, all I can tell you is you go put Asher in a boat and tell me how much you enjoyed the afternoon. No, listen, we put our boat in one time. I didn't even crank the engine up. I wanted to fish the dam. On my first cast, I reached back. The, the lake is, I mean, slick as glass. I'm thinking, man, this is a good afternoon. I reached back to throw, and Asher's standing on the deck back here, and he's just got his pole hanging out this way, and I didn't see him. And there's a, I mean, my reel's just bird nested. I just put my stuff back up in the boat. I said, let's just ride around and go home. <laughs> Father, I pray that you would just touch us this morning in our hearts and fill us with your love. God, help us as men in here, including the one holding the mic. I'm the one that need the most. Father, help us to reveal your heart to our children, to our sons. Father, don't let us snatch our children up in anger or anger or frustration. God, let us deal with that. Let us deal with the rage and all of those things in our heart. Father, that's not our children's problem. It's our problem. And so, Father, I pray today that you would just fill us with love. Fill us with love for one another. Don't let us try to be talking about somebody with a speck in their eye when a gleaming pole is in our own. Help us deal with our own blind spots. Help us to take the Word of God and let it be like a dagger that we'll begin to pick the shrapnel out from the wounds of the past of our own heart. God, I, will not, I, I don't want to look at people through my own wounds and through the own blind spots of my life. I want to be able to see people the way that you see them. Help us to not be judgmental to call fire down on folks. Let us realize what manner of spirit we are. Let us trust the power of your grace and mercy that you have the power to change lives. We are all living proof in this room. I was never voted to become a preacher when I was in high school, but through your great love and mercy, God, you have the ability to change lives. And Father, I'm so thankful for your grace and I'm so thankful for your mercy. God, I pray throughout this week as people go home to their families, Lord, let us be so thankful 
of the many blessings that you have poured upon our lives. God, as we sit around the table of food, let us not forget it's your power, it's your grace. And God, I bless their families this week in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. God bless you all. We'll see you here next Sunday. We hope you enjoyed our message of the week. Thanks for joining us. Our passion at Cornerstone is our family atmosphere built on deep relationships. We want to connect with you. Please take a moment and download our app and connect with us on social media to stay updated with all things Cornerstone. We pray you have a wonderful week.